0: As I mentioned, this was supposed to have been a transitional Sunday. Uh, we've been isolated in our homes, and we worshiped there. We worshiped in smaller groups of people with brothers and sisters. And today, some of us were going to be worshiping together in person at our three churches. Uh, we had intentionally put a pause on First Thessalonians so that Pastor Johnny in Cyprus and Pastor uh, Kevin in Tomball could share what's been on their heart for the last couple of, uh, of, of months, uh, the first time that they'd be able to stand in front of their congregations. And, and so I was really thinking about what we were going to talk about here at Bayou City Spring Branch. and In seasons and moments of transition, it's always good to focus on foundation. In transition, focus on foundation. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, And in whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. About eight months before the very first Sunday of Bayou City Fellowship, Amanda and I did a church planting assessment. We had to fill out a bunch of questionnaires. We had to uh, write a personal history for both of us and then write what we wanted our church to be about. And uh, the assessment was us on one side of the table and four pastors who had started churches on the other side of the table. It was very intimidating. And uh, at some point in the, the questioning, they asked, what is the vision of your church going to be? And I naively, I guess, I, I said, Jesus, Jesus is the vision of our church. And, and they said, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah. Of, of course, Jesus is the vision of every uh, church. But what is the vision of your church going to be? And I guess I hadn't prepared very well because I said, no, seriously, I, I, I want Jesus to be the vision of our church. Because Jesus is the foundation of every church. Uh, the foundation of a church is not a mission statement. It's not a strategy. It's not even a ministry. The foundation is a person. The Lord Jesus Christ, prophesied by the prophets and proclaimed by the apostles. So thinking about this as a transitional Sunday, what did I want to talk about? I wanted to talk about Jesus. And so if you have a copy of scripture, would you turn to Colossians chapter 1? We're going to focus on verses 15 through 20 this morning, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. He, verse 15, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The Son of God, Jesus, is the, inv- the, the, the image of the invisible God. Now, when you hear image, uh, don't think thumbnail. We all know what a thumbnail is. When you're cruising Amazon.com or Craigslist, you see a picture of the item that you want to purchase. That's called a thumbnail. It's not the actual thing. It's just a picture of the thing. But when the Bible uses the word image here, it, it's not just Jesus is a picture of God. He is a revelation. He is a manifestation of God, his Father. That's why Jesus was able to tell one of his disciples, Philip, in John chapter 14, verse 9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is not just a picture of God, our Father, but a revelation, a manifestation of God, our Father. And it reminds us, Exodus chapter 33, Moses has the invisible God. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses has the the courage to ask God an audacious question. Show me your glory, Uh, translated in our language, uh, God, I would like to see you. And at that point, no one on earth had more favor with God than Moses. And so God gives Moses a qualified yes. He says, I'm going to show you some of my glory, but in verse 20, it says, you cannot see my face for no one shall see me and live. This is the goodness of the gospel that our God who is so holy, That even to see his face is is to perish in this life. That our God has been revealed, seen, manifested, experienced in Jesus of Nazareth. I'd like to juxtapose two passages of scripture. So if you turn both places with me. First to Exodus chapter 19 and then John chapter 13. Let's turn to those places. Exodus chapter 19 and John chapter 13. In Exodus 19, God has rescued the Israelites from the hands of their oppressors in Egypt. They travel to Mount Sinai, and God is going to speak to the entire nation. It says in verse 10, The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and prepare for the third day, because on the third day the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set limits for the people all around, saying, be careful not to go up on the mountain or to touch the edge of it. Anyone who touches the mountain shall be put to death. Now skip down to verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning as well as a thick cloud on the mountain and a blast of a trumpet so loud that all the people who were in the camp trembled. So if you remember from last week, when Christ returns, there's gonna be the trumpet call of God. This goes back to Exodus chapter 19. When God is descending down onto Mount Sinai, there was a loud trumpet blast, so loud, in fact, that it made all the Israelites tremble. Verse 17, Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. They took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended upon it in fire. The smoke, smoke went up, the smoke went up like the smoke of a kiln while the whole mountain shook violently. As the blast of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses would speak and God would answer him in thunder. When the Lord descended upon Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, the Lord summoned Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went. Now remember, Colossians 1 says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now, John chapter 13. Verse 1. Now before the festival of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray him. And during supper... Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, got up from the table, took off his outer robe and tied a towel around himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was tied around him. See, in, in Christ, in Jesus, the Son of God, The power, might, and holiness of Mount Sinai has wrapped a towel around his waist and is now washing the dirty feet of sinners. I think our natural religious instinct is to choose one over the other. But in Christ, we have yes and amen. Yes to the holy, holy, holy of Mount Sinai. And yes to the sacred humility of that upper room, washing feet. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Verse goes on to say, that He is the firstborn of all creation. Now, firstborn in the New Testament doesn't mean birth order. Jesus has always existed, He is eternal. The way the Apostle Paul means firstborn here is the way Jewish people would use it in the first century, that the firstborn of any family would would have the lion's share of the inheritance and then would manage the estate. Jesus is Lord of creation. Verse 16 goes on to elaborate what it means to be the Lord over creation. Verse 16, for in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him And for him. In 2006, my parents sold the house that I grew up in and bought a few acres outside of town to build a home. Uh, They hired an architect to take some of the ideas that were in their head and put them on paper. Then they brought in electricians and framers and cabinet makers and the like to build the house. And then when it was all finished, they moved into the house. Well, well, Bible teachers for centuries now have used that very real world uh, thinking to describe what is happening here in Colossians chapter 1 that Jesus is the architect of creation. Uh, He is the builder, the creator of creation, and he is the owner of creation. And look at this list of what Jesus has created. Is there anything that has been left out? Look at it closely with me. Things in heaven, things on earth, things visible, things invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, powers, all things, just to, to cover all the bases, all things, it says. So from top to bottom, left to right, all things. All of creation was made through him. He's the builder. And all of creation was made for him. He is the owner. He created everything and everything he created belongs to him. That's why in our founding documents here at Bayou City, it says that we want to be a people with a radical focus on Jesus because he is the reason we exist past tense. He is the reason that we exist present tense. And he is the reason that we will continue to exist future tense. So that, so that leaves us with two questions. Who has been getting the credit for my life? And who is being magnified Through my life. Meaning who gets most of the applause? Who am I thanking for the life that I have right now? And who is being lifted up through my life? If you're anything like me, and and honestly, I, I hope that you're not. Then sometimes I would answer those two questions honestly with myself. Who is getting the credit for the life that I have right now? I am. Who is being lifted up because of the life that I'm living right now? I am. We give credit to ourselves for the life that we have, which sidebar for just a second. As long as we are giving credit to ourselves for the lives that we have, we will not be able to fulfill Jesus' command to us to love our neighbors as ourselves. Because the the very thinking that enables me to believe that I deserve credit for my life is the same seed which causes me to blame others for the lives that they have it cuts the heart out of any empathy because if I deserve all the credit for my life, when other people don't have the life that I have, if I'm giving credit to myself, then it frees me up to give blame to them. This might have been what in Jesus' parable in Luke chapter 10 of the Good Samaritan, the priest or the Levite is thinking when they pass by on the other side. I was able to walk down this road and no robbers got to me. Maybe I left at the right time. Maybe I took some precautions. So if I didn't get robbed on this road and this guy did, maybe I don't have to help him. It cuts the heart out of our empathy. As long as you are giving credit to yourself for the life that you have, it's going to be very difficult for you to fulfill that command to love your neighbor as yourself. But the truth is, is we should not be giving credit to ourselves. We should not be trying to get more credit from others for the lives that we, we have. All, all things, including you and I, were made through Christ and for Christ. My life and your life because of Christ, my life for Christ. Verse 17, he himself is before all things and in him all things hold together. Again, he is the origin of creation. He was not created. And in him, all things hold together. So we see very clearly here, we should not just be glorifying Christ because of what he's done in the past. We should be glorifying Christ for this very minute right now because he is holding us together. On the very first page of scripture, The heavens and earth are being created. You can turn to Genesis 1 if you want to follow along for just a second. And listen to what it says in verse 2. The earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. And then from that, verse 3 says, and God said, let there be light. So before the creation act of Christ, the earth was dark, it was formless, it was a watery deep. And then Christ began creating by the word of his power and this formless void became the creation that we know now. In him, all things hold together. And so we're able to see that Christ is both transcendent. He he is the, the thunder and lightning on top of Mount Sinai and he is intimate. He right now is the force that's holding your cells together. He is the one that is holding your nervous system together, connecting that big, beautiful brain of yours to the rest of your body. He is the one holding churches together. He is the one holding nations together. He is the one holding societies together. And this is the very reason why we want to repent and run away from sin. Because sin tries to tear apart. It seeks to tear apart the things that Christ is holding together. Christ takes that watery, dark, deep void that was the earth. And he brings it together to be creation. And in the Garden of Eden, what do we see? We see man and beast in perfect harmony. We we see the the earth uh, yielding its abundance easily we see Adam and Eve having perfect union and then them both having perfect union with God. But in Genesis chapter 3, through the cunning of the serpent and the foolishness of Adam and Eve, sin enters the world and what happens? Everything that had been in perfect harmony is torn apart. Now man and beast are at war because food and clothing are needed. That perfect union that existed between Adam and Eve, now through the curse, they're going to have to fight to be heard and respected. The land still yields its abundance, but it does so through blood and sweat. And Adam and Eve are removed from the Garden of Eden, barred from entering again, no longer allowed to walk with God in the cool of the day. So we repent and run away from sin because sin seeks to tear apart what Christ is holding together. And that's why Romans 8 says that creation and while the church, why the church should too groan for the return of Christ, because when Christ returns, as we talked about last week, he's going to put all of those enemies, sin, death, and hell, underneath his feet, vanquish them forever, and bring the world into perfect harmony again. Verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. In the church that I grew up in, you became an official member of the church when you were baptized. And on the Sunday that I was baptized, I was still a, a pretty young child. It must have been the fifth Sunday of the month because lots of things were happening. There were baptisms, there was the Lord's Supper, and there was a small church business meeting at the end of church that day. And at my church, you became a member through baptism. And also, once you were a member, you got to vote in the church business meetings. And so after my baptism, I'm still soaking wet, but I got a towel wrapped around me. I go and sit in one of the, the pews uh, there in the front, and I don't remember what the church business was. I just remember at one point said, Uh, Somebody said, all in favor, say I, and hands went up, and the church shouted, I, and I raised my hand, and I voted uh, I. I don't know what I voted for. Hopefully, it was a biblical and good thing, but I was a church member, and I voted in a church, but in the New Testament, what makes you a church member is not a transfer from one column in a spreadsheet, not a, a member, to a new column in a spreadsheet member. It's not about voting. It means that you are a part of the body, a body of Christ. So if you are a a part of Bayou City Fellowship today, you are a part of this body in the same way that your index finger is a part of your body. And it says that Christ is the head of that body. Uh, Your body can live without your index finger. A church can live without me. A church can live without you. A, A church cannot live without Christ A Christless church is not a church. It's a country club without amenities. It's a civic organization without supernatural power. It says that he is the head of the body, the firstborn from the dead. Again, that descriptor of firstborn doesn't mean order. Jesus was not the first person to be resurrected from the dead. In fact, Jesus himself resurrected three people that we know of uh, from the dead before his own resurrection. It means he's the Lord over all of resurrection. That's why when Jesus returns, there's going to be a resurrection from the dead because he is the Lord of the resurrection. So that he might come to have first place in everything. Your translation of the Bible may use the word supremacy or preeminent. In Philippians chapter 2, the apostle Paul is expressing the same idea that Jesus is Lord and supreme and first place, but he says it in a different way. Verse 5, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Verse nine, therefore God has highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Human history began with Christ the creator, and human history is going to reach a climactic moment when everyone from beginning to end will confess that Jesus is Lord. Would you do something with me right now? Would you take that index finger of yours um, and, uh, and touch your kneecap if, if you wouldn't mind? Just, just touch it, just humor me. That kneecap, it's going to bend one day in acknowledgement that Jesus is everything that Colossians 1 is saying. That bone and cartilage, I'm not sure what a kneecap is made of, whatever it is, it is going to acknowledge that there is one Lord and Savior. He has the supremacy. He is preeminent. He is first place. Now I want us to guard ourselves against the subtle trap that I think that we fall in. If you've been around church for a while and you consider yourself a good and faithful Christian, you hear that and you go, yeah, yeah, amen, amen, amen. But I think some of us fall victim to Jesus has first place, but maybe I have first place with him. Jesus and I have first place. And the trap that we fall in Is if we are not careful, we will attach Christ unintentionally to our selfish pride and ambitions. We will attach Christ's name to whatever group we see ourselves as a part of. This is what the Pharisees do early in the Gospels when they're they're investigating Jesus. They don't know that much about him. Uh, He's a new and powerful teacher. They, they, they knew no one teaches like this man did. And so they're giving him these tryouts. Maybe he can be a Pharisee with us. Maybe he can join our team. If we're not careful, we will end up attaching Jesus' name to our opinions, our views, and our agendas. And it is a dangerous thing to use the Lord's name in vain just to make a point. It should be the other way around. I am the blank slate. I attach myself to his view. I attach myself to his agenda. I attach myself to his opinions of the world. He has the first place. So let's make sure that he has first place in everything. First place in your affections, first place in your vocation, first place in your home, first place in your politics, first place in your education. First place in your worldview. First place in your singleness. First place in your relationships. First place in your fun. First place in your strengths. First place in your weaknesses. First place in your social media. First place among your pundits. Preeminent. Supreme. First. Verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus believed this about himself. Religious leaders were trying to kill him because he made himself equal to God. That's what they said. In John chapter 10, verse 30, he speaks directly to them when he says the father and I are one. And later on in that chapter, he says, if I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand. Here it is that the father is in me and I am in the father. One of his disciples, Thomas, was so convinced of this after Jesus' resurrection that he declares in front of everyone. Jesus is my Lord and my God. Verse 20, And through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. God was pleased. This is what God is doing in the world. For all things in heaven and earth to be reconciled to Christ. To be in perfect union, perfect harmony with Jesus. And how is that possible? It's peace through the blood of his cross. There was not and probably still is not a more violent and gruesome death than to be crucified by Romans. And what a miracle of God that worldwide everlasting peace could be accomplished through such violent sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 makes it clear how God is accomplishing that reconciliation between himself and man through you. It says that you are an ambassador of Christ. You are a minister of reconciliation. The way that you live and the words that you say, uh, exclaiming and proclaiming to everyone, be reconciled to God. And so one simple step that we can all take this week is find one person in your life and you pray for them every day that they would be reconciled to Christ. We are living in transitional days. Who, with any certainty, could predict what the next two months will look like? Christmas will be like a year from now? Things are changing The world is changing, cities are changing, our routines are changing, our jobs are changing. And in transition, you drill down to the foundation. And what is our foundation? Jesus, the Christ, the son of the living God. He is the image of God, the firstborn of all creation. We're gonna finish our gathering this morning by praying for one another just as we do every week. And as I mentioned at the beginning of our our service today, if you need prayer of any kind, would you call that number? I know you've seen it week after week after week and you wonder about what kind of person might be calling at the end of these gatherings. You know what kind of person is calling at the the end of the gatherings? People like you people like me, regular people, who sometimes come to the end of our rope We need something more than ourselves. We realize that maybe we are not solely responsible for the lives that we have, that Christ has been there all along and Christ will lead us into the future. And we want to pray for Christ's power to keep moving forward. So if you need the power of Christ through the spirit of God, through the prayers of brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you to call that number. Would you pray with me? God, we bless you from this house. And Jesus, we especially magnify and glorify you today. We thank you for those prophets who predicted your coming. We thank you for the apostles who proclaimed that coming to us. And we acknowledge you today as the head of the church, your body. Would you help us now as we pray for one another? And would you help us to live these things out? Pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.